Welcome into the show. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 5 a.m. super early morning wake-up call out west. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. Wednesday, November the 20th. This year is flying by. So fast. So, so fast. So, uh... I don't know if you felt that way, but uh, I certainly have. It has just gone by super quick, and uh, the uh, holiday season is upon us. Um, several friends of mine uh, kind of mark their calendars as midnight, October 31st, turning into November, and uh, all of that uh, pinned up holiday, Hallmark, um, you know, angst is unleashed it's like release the kraken <laughs> for holidays and whoo man uh so we are we are in the thick of it um today and uh for the last few weeks and we'll be uh through the new year as this uh, year winds down super fast the year's gone by super fast and um you know when we when we think back to a year ago Coming into now with the U.S. Men's National Team, it uh, the year may not have gone by fast enough. Um, it was it was uh, USA Canada, uh, excuse me, USA Cuba last night on neutral soil. Um, some excuses given for why U.S. didn't play in Cuba. Um, I think there was probably some political things going on behind the scenes that prevented that, but uh, nevertheless. The match took place on um, what looked like a cow pasture with some bleachers and uh, lines painted on top of the cow pasture because that was a horrible pitch quality-wise. It was a terrible pitch. And uh, and the play matched the quality of the pitch. It was it was just as much uh, manure and uh, and garbage uh, as we've unfortunately become accustomed to with this U.S. men's national team. When uh, when you see riders say this is a chance to build momentum as they finish out the year, what what are you thinking? Like we're not building momentum. I mean, yes, there's two victories over opponents we should always beat. And we're not even doing it in a proactive manner. Uh, against Canada, 36% possession at home. Come on, that's a joke. And and then you play Cuba last night. Just in a disorganized, trashy mess. And in a tournament... Yes, results matter. I get it. But against teams of this caliber, Cuba especially, but even Canada, these are moments where you should be really working on philosophy of play. These are opponents where you should really be focusing on principles as you have espoused as the head coach, and I'm speaking of Greg Berhalter, 
about how you want the team to play. What is the philosophy of play? How how are the players, what are they supposed to look like on the field? These are the moments, not against Germany, not against Argentina. Eventually, yes, I would love for that. I would love for us to have, you know, the confidence in, in our identity the way those countries have confidence in their identity. Spain, Italy, Germany, they don't all play the same way, but whatever their identity is, they try to go and play that, regardless of the opponent, regardless of the location. But even still, right now, you could you you could come out and say, look, we're we're still building, we're still trying to 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 really hone in on our identity. We're building this identity with this core group of players. You know, these are these are part of the future. We're going to take our time over this year and really just build our identity, take the bumps and bruises, but in the long run, we are going to be better off. It's Canada and Cuba, and we play this bad, this sloppy. It looked like high school soccer. That's not a compliment. It looked like college soccer. That's not a compliment. Too often, American soccer has resorted to what I call jungle ball, meaning the ball's just bouncing all over the place like a monkey swinging on a vine. It's chaos. You don't know where the ball's going next. It's up and down and everywhere. When I look at this U.S. men's national team, there are basic core possession and positional play principles that have not been taught. And the reason why I say they've not been taught is because it doesn't matter who the player is that comes in. They're all making random mistakes because a way to do things hasn't been demonstrated and taught. These are players. They, they don't have to be Messi and Ronaldo level players to understand basic principles. Now, are they good enough to, to, to be a Gerard Piquet in the back? Are they good enough to be a Van Dyke in the back? No. Do they have to be to know where they should be when the goalkeeper has the ball playing out of the back? Or when they have the ball facing their own goalkeeper, what they should do and where they should go once they give up the ball? You don't have to be Van Dyke. You don't have to be PK to understand that. I have seen youth teams. I have personally trained youth teams who have a better understanding of positional play and principles than our U.S. men's national team. And that's not because I'm Pep Guardiola. It's because there are basic concepts that if you just do an afternoon's worth of research, 
you can find the cues necessary to teach the players so that they know what to do when, where, on the ball, off the ball, in relation to the ball, their assignments. That's what we're not seeing. So all of this rah, 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 you know, we've got two two victories in a row and they're playing with more spirit. That's doing us no good. These are not quality opponents. No offense to our brothers and sisters to the north. They're not Germany. They're not Spain. They're not Brazil. They're not Argentina. They're not even Mexico. This is Canada and even more so Cuba. Against teams like this, especially Canada at home and Cuba, even if we're playing Cuba on Mars, we should look like Spain or Germany or Italy or Brazil against that kind of competition. The competency level of our players and the confidence level of our players should be so high against an opponent of that quality that no matter what the philosophy of play is, whether that is direct whether that is a Simeone, I'm going to absorb, 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 act like a boa constrictor, tighten down on you, and then I'm going to pounce like a cobra. Whether that is a prag- pragmatic style, more of a Jose Mourinho style, where I'm going to be very sound defensively, I'm going to make it very tough for you to break me down, and I am going to pick my moments in a similar way to Simeone to come at you. And I'm going to come at you in waves. It doesn't have to be Pep Guardiola. It doesn't have to be this Spanish national team philosophy of play. That's what Greg Berhalter espoused when he took the job that's what he's talked about throughout the entire tenure of his job that is what ernie stewart has backed him up on saying they've made progress on with his job so we judge them both by their own words they didn't sign up for rah rah poor man's version of diego simeone a chaotic, disorganized, we're going to have fight and spirit, no possession, counterattack, win on set piece, U.S. men's national team philosophy in 2019. That's ridiculous. But they said themselves they were going to be aggressive, proactive, have a positional and possessional philosophy. They themselves said they wanted to play like Spain. After all, the Federation for years has been 
trying to get all of its youth teams to understand and play a four three three and learn learn a a philosophy of possession based soccer. Now the federation has done a poor job in, in disseminating that education and teaching clubs to teach players and coaches how to actually teach that part of the game or that style of game. Too many coaches think formations actually matter when it comes to positional play. Positions on the the the, the formation on the field, the four three three. If you're playing the four three three properly. It's hard to tell what it is at certain times. Is it a 3-4-3? Is it a 2-3-2-3? It's very rarely a rigid 4-3-3. It should be constantly shape-shifting, morphing. I had the pleasure to fill in this weekend to, to coach a 2010 team, and I haven't really been coaching for the last couple of years with other responsibilities and things going on. Projects like this have have had more of my attention over the last couple of years, but I filled in this past Sunday, and uh, the team had been trying to learn some positional play, possession-oriented principles, and... I talked to the team. We had no subs for either game. 7v7. Young guys, 2010s. And um, so I asked them some questions. One of the questions I asked them, I said, look, we have no subs. So what do we need to do to conserve our energy, to be smart about how we play today? And they said, well, we need to pass more. I said, okay, that's good. That's good. What do we need to do in order to be able to pass more? And they looked at me unsure of of the answer and I said maybe that means we need to get in a position where we are open to the pass so that we make it easier on our teammate to find us would that help and they said yes that would that would help I said okay so then I, I talked to our center backs and I said look I don't want you to stay glued in the back Goalkeeper, I don't want you stayed glued in the back. I want I want you to come out and play. I want you to stay connected with the team. Pick your moments. If you see acres of space in front of you, take the ball. Go have some fun. And when you do, I asked the team, who's supposed to cover? And they said, the six. The midfielder. I said, okay. So whoever's at six, what's your job when the four or the five takes the ball and goes forward. They said, to stay with the other center back. Fair enough. For two games, no subs, they took the game to the opponent. One, one opponent was older than them, and they took it to them. They were playing out of the back. They were playing fearless. They were having a blast combining all over the field. These guys are eight, nine years old. You're telling me that we can't figure out how to get professional soccer players. I don't care if they're major league soccer. We can't figure out how to communicate some basic principles 
so that they understand their roles and what they should do in getting the ball from the goalkeeper to the other end of the field. So we're not running around like a chicken with their head cut off or lazily just asking a teammate to punt it down the field. I can't remember a single punt down the field from Sunday in two games with eight and nine-year-olds. I don't remember a single one. They were all rollouts and passes. Was it perfect? No. Was it a mess sometimes? Yeah. But it was a beautiful mess. And I loved every minute of it. And I think our national team should have been taking moments like Cuba and Canada on Friday to work on that beautiful mess and polish it. And instead, we wasted two opportunities to really hammer down on a philosophy of play that the coach has said we're going to do. And yet, when push comes to shove and you can't figure out how to communicate your principles to your team, you resort to classic American soccer. Garbage. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand. Uh, if, if you haven't gone yet, I don't know what's holding you back. The holiday season is upon us. Um, Black Friday is, is like a week and a half away. Cyber Monday is following that. So basically, in less than two weeks, you've got multiple opportunities. I don't know what you're waiting on. Go to ductigbrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G, brand.com. Use promo code DWSHOW. You will get 10% off of your order. So you're saving money on your, on your Christmas presents for your son, for your daughter. Um, if they're a player, a coach, whatever, go there. They have resources, like really cool coaching notebooks. I've bought them for my own kids to be able to track their own play because they have player notebooks, they have goalkeeping coaching notebooks, and they have gear, hoodies, shirts, whatever. Check them out at ductickbrand.com. 10% off with DW Show. We'll be right back after this.
Welcome back into the show. Thanks for joining us today. We were we were talking about going going into the break that it's not that complicated to teach principles. Now, are you going to be perfect when you when you're first teaching them? No. Are are teams going to make mistakes? Yes, because they're learning. It's not going to be completely polished and perfect application and implementation when uh, when you're rolling out a philosophy of play. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter whether it is uh, a, a 4-3-3, you know, positional play philosophy of, of trying to keep the possession for, you know, 60, 70% of the match. It doesn't matter whether it's a counterattacking style, a direct style. It doesn't matter what it is. You're not going to execute, you know, perfectly at the beginning, no matter what your style may be. I'm a musician. I grew up, uh, you know, in a musical family. My uh, my dad plays the guitar. My mom plays the piano. Um, music was all around my house. My mom is even to this day a piano teacher, and um, so we had instruments. We had access to to all kinds of things uh, musically in, in our family growing up, and. I, I learned as a musician, um, you know, this principle and, and I, and when I look at soccer, I view soccer from kind of this musical lens, there's a, there's structure and you're learning the structure, but there's also improvisation. And, you know, it's when you hear that guitar solo or that sax solo or that organ solo, you just like, whoa, that was sick. And that's what it's like when you see moments of magic on the field. That's what makes Messi so incredible to watch. Ronaldo, when he's had had his moments of brilliance. Ronaldinho, the Brazilian Ronaldo, the, these incredible players. And you see it from other players. It's just not as consistent as the greats. They, they, that's what makes them so good. They could do that kind of magic more often. When I think of learning things as a musician, whether it's a song structure of a song, chord progression, maybe it's a specific riff or a note scale, some type of aspect of a song that is specific. It's not perfect. The first time I play through it, you're kind of feeling your way through You're you're kind of looking at, you know, dynamics and and exactly, you know, the rhythm and the cadence of a chord progression and, and exactly what you're trying to do to, to make sure that you are learning the song properly. Now, one of the things I like to do is I like to then once I kind of understand the structure, I like to improv a little bit. I like to add some color, change some things to make it a little bit of my own, not exactly what is on the page. When I look at learning principles of play in soccer, I think of it that way. You're not going to pick it up overnight and you're not going to be perfect. The first time you sit down to play it through a symphony, you're going to miss some notes some transitions. Maybe your page doesn't turn quite quick enough. 
and you're going to miss out. You're going to miss a note. You're going to make a mistake. It's not the end of the world. You know, as a musician, that you're going to make those mistakes. You've already prepared your mind that you're going to have some hiccups the first few times you're running through songs. No one in their right mind is expecting perfection from the beginning the first time you look at a piece of music. Now, there are some amongst us who are better than others at sight reading and playing through music as close to what is on the page as possible quicker than others. But for the most part, everyone that's a musician knows that There's a basic process when you're learning a song. You break down the structure. Oftentimes you play it through at a much slower tempo than the original to make sure that you learn the intricacies. And then once you get comfortable, you speed it back up. This is a general process of learning music as a musician. When you're learning principles of play in soccer, it's very much the same way. You break things down, you teach bite-sized moments, you give principles, you give structure, you work on things, giving players a little bit more time, a little bit more space, so they understand the principles before you wind that tempo up, increase the speed of play, and execute consistently at a high level with high intensity. When we look at the U.S. men's national team, the problem, the biggest problem I have is words don't match actions. We're not seeing a progression. By now, almost a year in, we should see a team, no matter the players that come in, have an understanding of style, have an understanding of philosophy of play, have an understanding of basic core concepts. If you're in the U.S. men's national team pool, you should know what our philosophy is. You should know what our cue words are. You should have a binder and some videos that, it, that you could study to see exactly what you should be doing. For example, playing out of the back. If I'm a center back, I know these are the areas of the field where I need to be and when I need to be there in relation to the ball at any given moment. I understand basic principles. When I was coaching on Sunday, one of our center backs, great kid, he's 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 very good in the one v one, one v two with the ball. He 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 can generally get the ball. You could be on his back. He's facing his own goal, and he can turn out with his right foot playing as a four turn out towards the sideline and kind of face you up and, and beat you and, and get around you and oftentimes play out to a teammate or dribble into space. Occasionally he'll lose the ball and, you know, make a mistake, but he can generally do that pretty good. He's a, he's a good technical player. At the end of our first game, I had been giving him instruction at halftime. I'd given him instruction instruction during the game as well that I wanted him to to use his goalkeeper 
Trust your goalkeeper. When you've got the ball, you're facing your own goal. Use him. You don't always have to work so hard to get out of that pickle, to get out of that situation. You can also work smarter. Doesn't mean you don't 1v1. It doesn't mean that you don't ever turn wide. But never using your goalkeeper is a habit that I don't want you to have. I want you to trust your goalkeeper and I want you to understand why. So we spent, you know, five minutes in between the two games talking about this scenario. And so I was explaining to him that when he has a defender right on his back and he's facing his own goal, that I wanted him to start to try to pass to the goalkeeper and split out wide and open up to get the ball back from the goalkeeper or at least be an option to get the ball back from the goalkeeper. And he understood how to do that, but he didn't quite understand why. So I asked him, I said, when you have the ball and you have a defender on your back and I know that you can beat them, I've seen you beat them and you do really good at that. How do you feel? And he said, well, I feel pressure. I said, okay. Do you feel like you have a lot of time? No, I feel rushed. I said, okay. Do you ever feel like you're scared you're going to lose the ball? He said, sometimes. I said, okay. When you beat your player and you are able to turn them, turn them out wide and beat them in the 1v1, where do you generally look to relieve pressure, to get rid of the ball? Where do you generally look? And he said, well, down the sideline. I usually have a teammate here that I can pass to. I said, okay, fair enough. I said, now, if you were to drop the ball to your goalkeeper and then sprint out wide and open up, what is the defender going to do? That you, You've now given them a choice. Do they chase the ball or do they chase you? He said, well, more than likely, they're probably going to chase the ball. I said, okay. So if the goalkeeper receives the ball and then passes it back to you, what do you now have? He said, space. And I said, what else? He said, time. It's like, okay, if you pick the ball up from the goalkeeper in the same basic area where you, where you had the ball before, but instead of having someone breathing down your neck, you've received the ball with time and space, does that give you the ability to get your head up and survey the entire field? He said, yes. I said, so maybe there's a more than just the pass down the sideline in that moment. Maybe you have room to dribble. Maybe you have the ability to connect with your six or someone else. And he said, yeah, I never thought about that. And in that moment, that five-minute exchange of kind of walking him through the scenarios and why, it was never about programming a player to never do this and always do this. But it was about teaching him the why behind certain decisions and what can happen when you learn these principles. 
So in teaching him to lay the ball off and split out and open up and receive the ball, that he could give himself more option doesn't mean that he has to do that every time. It just means that he now has another way to do it. Another way that is easier for him to do. That allows him to be more comfortable, have more time, more space, pick out better passes, or in fact, bring the ball himself into the midfield. To watch the light come on in his head as we were walking through these scenarios and then to watch the U.S. men's national team over the last six months and even this weekend. I'm no Pep Guardiola. I'm teaching an eight and nine-year-old kid some basic philosophy of play, of, of positional play. I don't understand if you really know what you're talking about, how you're not able to communicate that in five minutes to a professional. Basic core concepts, whatever your philosophy of play is. Too often when I hear coaches speak, I hear random words, catchphrases. We want to keep the ball. Great. How? I could have yelled at my center back to keep the ball. What good would have that would that have done him? I could have I could have said to, to him, Hey, I want you to be smarter about what you do. How did that help him? Hey, stay calm. Don't panic. Yet I kept him in a position where his only option he felt like was to have a defender breathing down his neck and he had to figure out a way without being able to see to turn that defender, beat him, and then get a pass away every time. I could have yelled out random instructions or I could have taken a moment like what we did, explain the why behind the what and the where, the when and the how so that he understood that when in a match I said, hey, next time let's try to play the keeper He knew what that meant. He knew why I was saying it and what he should do in relation to that instruction. There was context to the phrase, play it to the keeper. Coaching is is about instruction. Oftentimes you hear people say that the game is the best teacher. That's garbage. The game is not the best teacher. If you were to drop out of a spaceship and there was a soccer ball on a soccer field, you would have no idea what the rules are. You would have no idea 
what was and was not allowed. And if people started playing, you wouldn't know exactly what you were supposed to do, where you were supposed to be, when you were supposed to be there, what you were supposed to do, how you're supposed to do it. The game is a test about what you know. It's not the instruction to learn. It is the test to see what you have learned. That's where you get feedback on who you are as a player or as a coach. Playing the game is not the best teacher. People mistake pickup soccer as those players who play pickup soccer, that the, the game is the best teacher. And I think this is where some of that catchphrases come from. The best players have played unstructured, and therefore the game is the best teacher. Let the kids just play. No. You know what happens in a pickup game? It doesn't matter whether it's basketball or soccer. It could be any pickup game. It doesn't matter the sport. You know what's happening? Transference. Someone is the teacher, and in that moment, someone is the student. There's a Luke Skywalker and a Yoda. Older to younger, more experienced to less experienced. Maybe players at the same level, but one has insight on something that the other doesn't. It's called transference. That's what's happening in those moments. Kids are not going to magically go out and play pickup soccer and become Pele or Messi unless there's other players in those games that are able to teach them things that they are able to then pick up. It's knowledge passed on informally, person to person. Sometimes it's not even spoken. It's just demonstrated. But it's all transference. It's not the game itself. If you put 10 players on the field in a 5v5 and none of them know what to do, and you think the game is going to teach these kids how to become competent players just because the game is the best teacher, you're fooling yourself. It's not going to happen. The teacher is the best teacher. Now, the teacher may take different forms. In most cases, it's a coach, but at younger ages, especially, it's the parent. That's why I'm such a big believer in Tom Byer's book, Football Starts at Home. Empowering parents is key to football literacy and competency. The game is not the best teacher. Teachers are. The game is just a test. It is, it is, it is a moment of feedback. Well, I tried that. That didn't work. Let me try this. Let me put that in the back of my Rolodex that when I get back into training this week, I've got to get that move a little bit cleaner, a little bit quicker, a little bit more sudden. 
whatever the case may be, the game is the feedback. It's not the teacher. Teaching comes from transference. It comes from instruction, comes from education, simulation. Teachers are the best teachers. It's like throwing kids in a school classroom, having computers and textbooks and all of these resources, and you say the classroom is the best teacher. That's not what we do. Teachers teach. They guide students through lessons, through a pathway of education. They walk them through the steps of learning specific tasks, principles, philosophies, modules. Teachers teach. So when we come up on a national team or a youth team and you hear instructions that are just random, like keep the ball, press, play the goalkeeper, calm down. If there's no context to that instruction, and that context may not be given in that moment, Those words may be reminders of something already taught, like the like like what we talked about a a few moments ago, where I broke that idea of playing to the goalkeeper down to that player, so he understood the context. He asked the original question and continued to ask questions throughout that moment where he was learning. And, and getting an idea for himself what that meant. So later when I said, don't be afraid to use the goalkeeper or use the goalkeeper in that moment. Make it easier on yourself. He understood the context of that phrase. Too often I hear coaches just shouting, be patient. But you've not put them in a position to be patient. We shout, keep the ball. But we ourselves have created an environment of chaos by not structuring our teams in a way to stay calm and be patient. When we don't proactively set our teams up to be protagonists, we often have to react which is why we see so much in American soccer. If you were to look at it, it looks like chaos theory, random actions, random movements. Why did that player go there? Where was that player? Why wasn't he in a better position? Because they've never understood. They've never been taught. We yell, keep the ball, but what does that mean? What is the context for that phrase? Too many clubs leave their coaches on an island. 
They say, we're going to play a 4-3-3 and we're going to teach possession-based soccer. And we talk to parents and we lay things out and we say, this is what we're going to do. And yet you go watch teams play and every time the ball goes to the goalkeeper, it's punt it down the field. That right there is clue number one that your, your teams and your coaches don't know what they're doing. If you say you're about possession-based soccer and most of the time you're punting down the field, there's a disconnect between intentions and what has been disseminated in terms of education. That's an easy clue for some self-assessment. We can tell kids we want them to work harder How often, when we talk about working hard, have we set teams up? Have we set players up for success? How to press? Who's the cover? Who's the balance? Have we ever talked to players about working harder with our minds? I think back to Xavi and Iniesta at Barcelona. They would always talk about if you're not more mentally tired after a soccer match than you are physically tired, then you didn't do it right. How many of our kids come off the field, they could barely keep their tongue from dragging the ground because they're so physically exhausted. But their mind... doesn't look like it got used much we celebrate because it's so easy to see a kid running around like a chicken with his head cut off we celebrate effort but when do we celebrate the player who is so cerebral and smart that they position themselves in a way to take out two or three players just by their off the ball marking They may not be running everywhere, but they took away half the field just because they got in a passing lane. As coaches, we've got to understand what we're looking for, what we're trying to teach. Unfortunately, a year into this experiment, it doesn't look like Greg Berhalter has that ability. He's not figured out his own philosophy to be able to teach his own philosophy for his own philosophy to then be outputted on the field, at least based on the words that he has said publicly about positional play and possession-based soccer, being protagonist, being proactive. It doesn't line up. Now, maybe over the winter, he, 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 he sees the light and he figures out and does a rethink of his way he's trying to communicate and the way he's trying to teach and whatever. But if you look through his track record and you look through his coaching experience, there's nothing there to say that things are going to change. This is the coach that we have. I think we're in trouble with the U S men's national team. I think we're in big trouble. And I think that anyone looking at these two results 
as positive momentum or as good things other than the fact that they won the games. We're going to be sorely and sadly mistaken when we get into World Cup qualifying because I think we are in major trouble. If we don't get this sorted out soon, we are going to be in major trouble. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. If you have not gone to charitywater.org, as I mentioned earlier on the show, it is the holiday season, and now is the best time of the year to do this. You're already in the spirit of, of giving. We got Thanksgiving next week, so you can be thankful that you have clean drinking water, but you can also be part of the story of helping others get clean drinking water. Go to charitywater.org for more information, how you can join their story and make their story part of your story this holiday season at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this no one no man no woman no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs with algae with disease in it bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Speaking of managing, yesterday during the international break, and I don't know why they waited so late in the international break, but um, Tottenham, who, you know, is Tottenham, uh, fired uh, Mauricio Pochettino, and they had already lined up his replacement. None other than the special one. Jose Mourinho. So he's making his way around the Premier League, uh, having managed Chelsea, Man United, now Tottenham. I do think you're going to see an injection of some energy. I think they are going to play a little bit better. Um, things had gotten a little stale in Tottenham. And and I don't think it was all Pochettino. And I think it's unfair to, to lay the blame uh, solely at his feet, although I do think he he's um, you know responsible uh, uh, for at least 
part of it, but I think the players were, but I think management more than anybody, uh, upper management above Pochettino were responsible because, you know, when you look at these rosters, especially in the modern game, you need new blood. You, there, there, there's got to be some, you know, fresh blood. Doesn't mean every window you got to be trying to bring in a Neymar into your team. That kind of buzz and excitement. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that you've got to continually be looking to improve your squad. And uh, we've seen, you know, different approaches, different clubs. For example, Liverpool this summer did not do any major business, like you know, with their first team. Every, everybody, you know, came back. Um, they didn't lose anybody. They they also didn't bring anybody back or bring anybody in, you know, as a big-time signing. Whereas, you know, in past windows, they brought in a Salah. They brought in a Mane. They brought in a Firmino. They brought in a Van Dyke. And, and you know, we're building. And now that they've got kind of a core now there's, there, you know, you're looking for the right pieces to fit in with that. And if you don't look to do that over time, it will get stale. Even at Liverpool, even with those players, it will get stale. You, you, you will have to bring players in to challenge for that first team, um, and and push those guys on, etc. And and that's where I think Spurs made a mistake. I think they went a little bit past the sell date on on the squad and didn't bring in enough fresh blood and I think they got tired and ultimately I think they got tired of each other and there was probably this feeling like we're not getting any help from the top and we're tired of this and that and I think it just kind of started to slowly sour and um, it was clear that the players were not putting forth their best effort um, and it's hard to say whether Pochettino is putting forth his best effort at that point either. There's no way to know. We're we're not on the inside of that locker room, but um, you know, it is what it is. So Pochettino moves on. He will be highly coveted by a lot of teams. Um, I like Pochettino. I don't rate him as high as some others, but I would gladly take him at Barcelona over Ernesto Valverde. Ernesto Valverde. Um, but uh, he's going to land somewhere, and he's going to land with a, with a good job. He did a really good job. He is highly rated by many people within the game. So, um, you know, I think, he, I think he's going to have options. Um, I don't, and it may even be during the season this year that he may have options um, but if not, I definitely think if he wants a job in the summer, he's going to have plenty to pick from, uh, and, and we'll see, uh, we'll see how that goes with, uh, with him and, um, you know, the, the whole setup at, at Tottenham and, and, and Mourinho, I mean, it, it, look, you can not like Mourinho. I'm not personally a fan of Mourinho and his tactics and, and the way he plays and etc. but you cannot argue with the fact the guy knows how to get results. He's a very, very smart guy. Um, and he's a, he's a really, really good manager and he knows what to do. He knows how to do it. And, um, I think his job at Man- Manchester United was underrated. I don't think people realized the work that he did. Um, and, and 
was it fun to see him get uh, as a you know as a Barca fan first and foremost, but also as a Liverpool supporter in the Premier League uh, to see you know Jose Mourinho get uh, a little bit of the stick and and you know all of that. Yeah, it was fun. It was great. Like you know. I, I watch his smug face enough at Real Madrid and Manchester United. That was quite fun. However, I also know that he's an incredible manager, and he's going to do some good things, I think, at Tottenham. Now, does he get him over the hump? Does he get him over the edge? I don't know. But uh, but I do think I, I do think they needed a change, and this was probably the easiest change they can make right now. You know, they couldn't get rid of the players in November, and they couldn't do an overhaul of the squad uh, completely in January either. So to, to try to get anything right it for this season, this was this was probably the decision they had to take. And they needed to take it now to give uh, Mourinho or whoever was going to come in enough time to, uh, to implement, um, you know, a, a philosophy and, and try to get the ship righted. Um, don't know if they're going to have an opportunity to, to work their way towards um, finishing top four. We'll see. But uh, I definitely think, um, if, you know, if, if Tottenham was a, a team in the stock market, I would say it's an undervalued stock. Uh, that it's underperforming uh, by now. Um, go buy shares of Tottenham because it's, to, it's going to get better. Don't know if it's going to you know, win out over, um, you know, the top. I don't think it's going to win the whole thing, but I, th- I do think it's going to rise. And if it was a stock, it would, it would, it would, it would give you a good return. Um, so, you know, the, one of the things that we've been talking about throughout the show is, is kind of where we are as a U.S. men's national team program. We look at a coach like Jose, Jose Mourinho coming into Tottenham, the guy has a pedigree. He he knows what he's talking about. Um, you may not like his antics. You may not like how he does certain things, but you can't argue with the fact that the guy knows his stuff and is a top manager, and uh, and he gets results. Um, another management change that happened over this international break is Luis Enrique is coming back to his job with the Spanish national team. And, um, you know, I don't know if you're aware or not, but uh, he stepped away from the job at first. It was, it was temporary and then permanent. Um, his, his young daughter had gotten sick with uh, cancer and passed away. And, um, so after months and months away, um, he is, he is now going to actually come back and, uh, and resume his duties as, uh, the new, national team manager of Spain going forward. Um, and, and so I, I, um, I look forward to seeing Spain continuing to develop under him. Um, I, I actually think he's the kind of coach that is perfect for the Spanish national team um, in the way that he plays um, and, and, and manages. I, I think, I think it'll be some fun times. It'll be, it'll be fun to watch. Um, the team perform going into Euros 2020 next summer. Um, you know, we've talked about the U.S. men's national team job and CONCACAF. CONCACAF is not a great area of the world for national team play. 
the quality of play uh, is is across the board really poor, and uh, there's not a lot of competition. The main competition for the men in terms of quality level measuring stick is Mexico. And if you look at Mexico under Tata Martino versus the U.S. under Greg Berhalter, we're heading in two different directions. Um, Mexico keeps getting a, a better sense of identity and purpose. We seem to be getting more and more lost. Results aren't going our way. So what we were trying, even though it wasn't going well, is actually getting worse. And, um, and that's where, that's where we are. And, and I think it's something that we've got to, um, that we've got to, to take in, uh, to account is that, um, you know, it is, um, it's not good where we are. It's, it's not good. It's not good enough. And, um, we could do better and we should do better. And, and I, you know, I think, um, it's important, uh, for us to hold that standard and push for something greater, something better. And, and that is my hope going into the new year that we, we, we do find a sense of purpose, um, as, as we go forward and, um, and, and try to move forward. I want to close today's show on a somber note. Uh, we, we are in the holiday season and, um, I wouldn't be here without social media. Uh, I've made so many friendships and connections and relationships, over the years through uh, social media. And uh, it has literally been uh, the the doorway and the gateway and the connecting point for so many of you. So many of you as viewers would not even know about this show or listen to this show uh, on occasion uh, without social media. And uh, yesterday, a member of our social media, American soccer family, uh, suffered a... Um, a horrible loss and, and tragedy. And, um, uh, I, I reached out to, uh, to Chad, uh, Smith at Chad Smith 71, who had tweeted out that yesterday was the worst day of his life. Um, his, him having to tell his two boys, um, that their wife, that his wife and their mother had passed away after battling cancer. And, um, I wrote to him and said that, uh, we've never met, but social media has a strange way of connecting people on behalf of my family. I want to express our condolences to you, your boys and your family. We will keep you in our thoughts and prayers, especially during this holiday season. And, um, I just wanted to say to Chad and to his boys, um, I don't envy you. I, my thoughts and prayers absolutely go out to you. And, um, this has got to be awful and I can't imagine. And especially coming into the holiday season, but, um, we, we are all keeping you guys in our thoughts and prayers. And, um, our stories, our, our lives would have never connected without social media. And um, I just think it's important for all of us um, to recognize the impact of being able to connect with people and hopefully share 
in in grief and in support of those who have lost um, this holiday season, uh, like Chad and his boys. And um, I would encourage all of you to to uh, to reach out to him and share, you know, your your words of support, encouragement as well. Um, you know, it it will not change uh, their situation. And it will not, uh, unfortunately, be able to bring her back. But um, I do think it's a little thing that we can all do to make the world a little bit better place. To take a moment, share some kindness, share some support, share some love. Oftentimes, social media gets derided as, as a tool for the crazies and for anger and for going back and forth and arguments and debates. But I think... It's all about how we use it. It's a tool. And today I would encourage everyone listening or watching this show to take a minute, reach out to, uh, to Chad and uh, let him know that uh, his American soccer family, his global soccer family um, is thinking about him and his family today at Chad Smith 71. That is our show for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening as always. And uh, as I said, Chad, you and your boys and your family are in our thoughts and prayers. We'll see everyone again tomorrow.